you for for being here and worship with us today. And if you uh, are in our overflow room or if you're watching us on Facebook Live, uh, we want to welcome you as well. As Stephen mentioned, we are continuing a series today called Rule Number One. And I mentioned this last week. If anyone ever comes to you and they give you some rule or some piece of advice and they say, remember this, whatever you do, this is rule number one. What they mean is whatever you do, don't break this rule. Be sure to remember, always follow this particular rule because it is that important. And so in this series, what we're doing is looking at a series of rule number ones, these essential truths for life, things that we do not need to forget and that need to become part of our DNA. And so this week, our rule number one is this, God's word changes me. You'll find this on your message map. Rule number one is God's word changes me. I think this truth is perfectly illustrated in the passage that Stephen just read for us. That passage that Stephen read, in my opinion, is the most interesting, fascinating, thought-provoking parable that Jesus ever told. Just in the initial reading, it grabs our attention. There is a man who is in Hades, or what we would call hell, and he is speaking from that locality. I mean, that alone gets our attention. It makes us want to know what he is saying from the afterlife. There is also another man who goes to Abraham's side, or what we would call heaven. In the Jewish mindset, someone who was righteous in life, when they died, they went to what was called Abraham's side. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. So they went to Abraham's side, and although we could get into some technical differences between heaven and Abraham's side, for the purpose of this story, they are virtually synonymous. So there's a a man in hell, there's a man in heaven, and the man in heaven is even given a name. Lazarus. The only parable of Jesus where a character is given a name. That fact has caused some scholars to say that this was not actually a parable of Jesus. That this was a true story. And that the people listening to this story, they knew this rich man. And they knew this poor beggar named Lazarus. And Jesus here by telling this story was essentially saying to the crowd, Listening that day, remember the rich man and remember how you envied him, his house and his clothes and his food and the luxuries of life that he had. And remember the guy, Lazarus, who lived on the street right outside the rich man's house. And remember how you pitied him, how you walked past and you shook your head. Remember how you felt about both of these individuals. Well, you know, both of them have died. And let me give you an update on their lives now. Let me tell you what's going on now. You want to know their Facebook status? It has changed since they were on earth. Let me give you an update on where these guys are now. And so some have guessed because Lazarus was named, this was actually a true story. However, most likely it was a parable. Other than this character being named, it fits all the elements of a parable. And the big giveaway is the basic plot of this story did not originate with Jesus. In both uh, ancient Jewish and Egyptian literature, this story was found. 
almost like a fable to warn the wealthy, to be kind to the poor, uh, to teach a moral lesson. This story was found in literature that predated Jesus. And when I read that fact, it really bothered me. It shocked me. I, I wanted this story to be uniquely Jesus and all his. And it bothered me that this story existed before Jesus until I did a little more studying. And I realized that what Jesus did is he took a familiar story. He put his own twist on it to make a point that no one who was listening would have expected. Jesus had this way when he would tell parables of making people think that he was making a point that they would agree with. And then they would walk away and say, I think he just stepped on my toes. I think he just slapped me across the face and I never saw it coming. And that's what Jesus did in this particular story. Now, he began the story the way the ancient Jewish and ancient Egyptian stories began. It was very familiar to the crowd that was listening. There was this wealthy man who had a life of luxury. He had the fine clothes. He wore purple, according to Jesus. And that day, purple was an expensive cloth. If you wore purple, it was a sign that you had money. It was the ancient Ralph Lauren or the ancient Gucci. It was just this status symbol that people would wear if they had money. Fine clothes, fine foods. He had all the nice things in life. And then he goes to describe this poor man living on the street just outside the gate to the wealthy man's house. He even gives this poor man a name, Lazarus, to really personalize the story, to really create a level of interest there. And he describes Lazarus as not only being poor, desperately poor, extremely hungry, but also as having sores all over his body some kind of skin condition so that the dogs would come and lick his sores. It, it was a picture of two extremes. The contrast could not have been greater. A man living in extreme wealth, extreme luxury, and another man living right beside him in extreme poverty. And what, it, what made it so awful is that this wealthy man would eat his meals push away from the table, complaining that he could not eat another bite as the sound of a hungry, grumbling stomach could be heard through the window just outside his home. The contrast could not have been more different. Then Jesus continues the story and both men die. Again, very similar to the to the stories that were told in Jewish and, and Egyptian literature. They both die and they both go to the eternal states. The poor man goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell. And again, opposite contrast, opposite extremes. Now the, the tables have been turned and the poor man lives in luxury. He lives in paradise. And the wealthy man who had nice things while he was on earth he is in hell and he is in torment. Had Jesus stopped the story there, his listeners would have said, that's exactly right, Jesus. Thank you for reminding us of this story. Thank you for taking this very familiar story and making it your own and sort of packing it with this powerful punch and reminding us of this truth. And most of the people listening to Jesus, by the way, were poor 
So they would have loved this story. Like a pastor of a conservative church really giving it to the liberals. You know, and everybody's like, amen, yeah, preach on, stick it to them. That's the kind of message this would have been. Or a pastor of a liberal church sticking it to the conservatives. And everybody says, yeah, we love that. The crowd that day would have said, that's right. Those wealthy people with all that money, they need to be nice to us because one day they're going to get theirs. Had Jesus ended there, they would have loved the story. But Jesus continued and he put a twist on it. Here's how he continued. Look at verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. In the Jesus version of the story, the wealthy man in Hades or in hell speaks to Father Abraham. And he says, I I am in awful shape. I am in torment. Would you please show a little mercy? Send Lazarus, Lazarus just to dip his finger in water. Just so one drop can fall to my tongue and relieve me from this agony. Here, the way Jesus tells the story, you can hear the dry, parched cries of this man as he is in torment in hell. Then here's how the story continues. Abraham answers and says, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there, uh, over there to us. And so Jesus continues the story with the response of Abraham, which says, look, you want relief from your torment, but remember, when you were on earth, you received good things. And you never gave any relief to Lazarus. And now he has good things in this life and you're experiencing torment. And he said, moreover, even if Lazarus was willing to help you, he cannot. There is this divide. There is this chasm. There is this barrier between us and you. And no one can cross over this barrier. I'm sorry. You can get no relief from your pain. Now, had Jesus stopped the story there, his listeners would have said, man, I mean, Jesus, you, you really juiced that one up. I mean, you told that familiar story, but you added this dialogue and this reminder that our eternal states are permanent and there's no relief and this is forever and we could hear the cries of the rich man in hell. And Jesus, that, that was amazing. Thank you for that reminder. But then Jesus continues a story. And this is where Jesus twists the story to make a point that no one expected him to make. Look how the story continues. Verse 27. So Lazarus, uh, I mean the rich man, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
So the rich man in hell is told by Father Abraham that he can get no relief, that his situation will not change. And when he realizes that fact, his mind turns to his family still living on earth. And he says, okay, Father Abraham, if you can't do anything for me, if Lazarus cannot do anything for me, then would you please, please, please send Lazarus to my five brothers who are still on earth. You see, Father Abraham, they're just like I was. They're selfish. They don't care about anybody else. They don't care about the needs of the poor. They're unwilling to help anyone else. Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to them to warn them so that they do not end up in this same place where I am today. Here's how Abraham answers. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Abraham says, they don't, they don't need Lazarus. They don't need Lazarus to, to come back from the dead and to warn them. They have Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament, what we would call the Bible. Abraham says, they have the Bible. The Bible tells them how they should act. The Bible tells them to care for others. The Bible tells them that they should care for the needs of the less fortunate. The Bible gives them all these instructions. They don't need Lazarus. They have the Bible. Then here's the response of the wealthy man. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Here's the response of the rich man. The Bible's not enough. I know, Father Abraham, that they have the Bible. When I was on earth, Father Abraham, I had the Bible. I had lots of Bibles, all beautiful, leather-bound, big Bibles. They were on my bookshelves. They were on my coffee table. When people would come over for dinner, they would comment on how beautiful my leather-bound Bibles were. They loved looking at my Bibles. I know that they have the Bible. In fact, Father Abraham, they probably have my Bibles that I owned. When I was on the earth, they divided those Bibles up. They have the Bible. There's no doubt, Father Abraham. But the Bible's not enough. Just having the Bible is not enough. Send Lazarus. That'll convince them. Something dramatic, a person coming back from the dead, that will change them. Owning a Bible is not enough. Then here's how Abraham responds. This is the conclusion of the story, and this is the punchline that no one expected Jesus to make. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to the Bible, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. There's a couple of things going on. Jesus here is making reference to his future, that God would raise him from the dead. But he's also making the point of the whole parable, which is this. The Bible is incredibly powerful. That if we will listen to, if we will read, if we will engage with the word of God, it will change us. 
It will change our character. It will change the way we think. It will change the way we treat others. It is that powerful. It will change our attitudes. It will change our countenance. It will change the fabric of who we are simply by listening and engaging with the Word of God. And according to Jesus in this parable, it is more powerful than even your great-great-grandfather coming back from the dead and talking about his eternal state. That is the point of the parable that Jesus makes. That this book is that powerful. Unfortunately, for most Americans, we treat this book sort of like we treat our wedding china. Katie and I have had our wedding china for 17 years and one week. Our anniversary was last week. I think we have used it twice. It sits in a cabinet somewhere. It collects dust. It's special to us. I do not want to get rid of it. When we move, we move it and we put it back up in another cabinet. You know, I think we've used it twice, both times before kids were born. Now that we have kids, it stays safely locked up in the cabinet. We will keep it forever. We will keep it till we die. But it has zero practical effect on our lives. I read a statistic recently that 90% of Americans own a Bible. 90% of Americans have a Bible in their home but they don't necessarily engage with it. So many people have a Bible. It's one their parents gave them when they graduated from high school. It's one their grandparents gave to them when they got married. When grandma and grandpa come to visit, they pull it out, they dust it off, they put it on the coffee table, they open it up to the book of Psalms. Yeah, look, here it is. We read it. I promise, grandma. I promise, grandpa. As soon as they leave, they close it up. It goes back on the shelf. Most Americans do not engage with the Word of God. But if we will treat this book, not like our wedding china, but our everyday china, it will absolutely change our lives. That was the point of Jesus in this parable, that the word of God is that powerful. Now, sometimes it is instant and dramatic. If you've been around here for a while, you know that Katie and I, before we came here, lived in Rome, Italy. Uh, we served for a mission agency there that worked with college students. Um, our job was to engage uh, students at a particular university who were studying English. Uh, we were to have conversational English with them uh, and then try to engage them in spiritual conversations that hopefully would lead to them um, starting a church and, and becoming followers of Christ. Uh, when we got there, there was a, an Italian student at that university who had met uh, some of our former teammates a couple of girls, and then he met another couple that worked on our team, and then he met me and Katie. And he was not very religious. He was maybe nominally Catholic, sort of at best. Um, he would have described himself as a deist. A deist is someone who believes that there is a God out there somewhere who created the world, but really has no involvement, no personal interaction with the world. Sort of the watchmaker theory, he created the watch, wound it up, and just let it go. That's what Alex believed, that yeah, there's a God, he created things, but he's off doing his own thing now, we're just sort of left on our own. But he became friends with us, and he began to engage with us, and he started asking questions, and several times he said, all of you believe the same thing? 
All of you believe that God is not just some distant God, but God is a personal God who engages with us, that God sent his son to die on a cross for our sins and that through Christ, we can have a personal relationship with God and the promise of eternal life. It's like all of you believe that. So I've never met people before who all believe that same thing. And he kept saying, I, I just can't believe that all of you believe that. But Alex was a highly intelligent guy. Spoke three languages well and could speak others enough to get by. Uh, and he read a lot. And so after spending some time with us, he finally said, I'm, I'm going to check this thing out. And he sat down one week and he started with the book of Matthew and read the New Testament all the way through. At the end of that week, he closed his Bible and he said this, before this week, I could not believe that all those people believed those things about God. Now, after reading the New Testament, I can't believe that I didn't believe that. And in his apartment by himself, he became a follower of Christ. Sometimes we engage with the word of God and it's that instant and it's that dramatic. Most of the time though, it is slow and incremental. And as we consistently engage with the word of God, it changes us. It changes our character. It changes who we are. It changes how we view the world, how we view ourselves, and how we respond to others. When I was at a former church, one day I was, one Sunday morning, I was walking to worship. And 10 minutes before worship started, and a lady uh, confronted me in the hallway. And I guess it was just my day, but she ran all over me about something that she wasn't happy with that I had done in my particular ministry. And, and she just ran all over me. And, and her facts were way off. And, and more than that, her timing was bad. We're 10 minutes before worship, and she is just, just giving it to me. And I would later learn it really wasn't about me. She had a burr in her saddle, but her airing of grievances that day was directed right at me. And she just wanted me to know how unhappy she was. Well, as she talked, I knew she was wrong on several things. I mean, her facts were way off. And as she talked, I thought about 10 zingers that I could come back with that would put her in her place. I mean, just knock her right off that high horse. You know, and I could, all I had to do was just give her the facts, you know, and, and that would have done it. And so she's talking, I could just feel my blood boiling. But at some point during her tirade, this verse that I had read so many times before came to mind. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And she's talking and the Lord just brought that to mind. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And so she finished and I looked at her and I said, you know what? I am so sorry. I'm so sorry you feel that way. I'm so sorry that I responded in that situation the way that, that you thought I responded. And you know what? What you are saying makes sense. And I would like us to get together and figure this out. The moment I said that, her shoulders relaxed. Her entire countenance changed. And she said, you know, this was a really bad time to hit you with this. And, and, and I'm sorry, and I think I just, I think it's overblown. And you know what? I really appreciate you responding this way, and I'll get together later with you about it. And at some point we did, and we figured some things out. And here's what I want you to know. Two years later, 
When I left that church, this woman wept and told me how much my ministry meant to her family. Now, had I responded the way I wanted to respond, the way I naturally would have responded, that story would have gone much differently. But I remember that verse. I remember the word of God teaching me that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And it completely changed my response to this woman. One of the things that I'm really good at doing is worrying. In fact, if you've got a problem, if there's something that's bothering you and you're tired of it bothering you, just come to me, set up an appointment. We can sit down and talk. You can tell me about your problems and I will worry about it for you. I mean, I'm really good at it. It's just something that God has gifted me in. And I know how I worry about my family. I worry about my kids. I worry about the church. I worry about the future of our country. I worry about the economy. I mean, if it's worryable, I can do it. I just worry all the time. However, there's this verse that has helped me tremendously. One that I have read over and over and over again from the book of of Philippians. Here's how it reads. Do not be anxious for anything. Do not worry about anything, but in everything through prayer with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Now, I certainly have not perfected this. I've not come close to perfecting it, but I'm a lot better than I would be without God's Word teaching me this truth. And I've learned how when I start to worry about something, to stop and to pray. And I've experienced so many times when I've stopped and I've prayed this peace of God that passes all understanding. And I might go back to worrying for a little while, but then this verse comes to mind and I pray and I experience the peace and then I return to worrying, but then I pray and I experience this peace. And naturally, I would just be this tight, wound up ball of tension that could never be released. But the Word of God has given me freedom from this thing that I naturally struggle with. One of the areas where I've had struggles is in my marriage. You know, if you've been married more than a year, you have too. You understand. If you've been married less than a year, you don't understand. If you've been married less than a year, you're living now uh, off of what's called rocket fuel. <laughs> but after a while, the rocket fuel burns up. And it's not that you don't love the other person. It's just that life happens. And especially when you get a couple of kids uh, and you get busy, and both have jobs, life gets kind of crazy. You'll find yourself where you feel like instead of you're in a Hollywood romance, you feel like you're just in this business partnership. And every conversation is about the business. And you'll get together and talk, and it's like staff meeting. You know, you you have this agenda. You're going through the agenda for staff meeting. You know, agenda item number one, the dog. (laughs) Did you let the dog out? Yeah, you did. Then why is there a yellow puddle on the floor right now? The kids did that? All right, agenda item number two, the kids. Why do we have kids? I I, I don't know. (laughs) Agenda item number three, it appears, is the budget. Um, Should we skip the discussion and go straight to the fighting or and just save time? Or should we actually talk about the numbers? I mean, if you've been married, you get this. You understand this. 
And there have been times in my marriage that I have become frustrated with Katie and not viewed her in the way that I should view her. And then there's this passage that will come to mind from Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this scripture will come to mind and God will remind me, if you think that she offended you, think about how your sin has offended me. And you think that whatever she did cost you, Think about how your sin cost me, my son's life on the cross. And so here's my command to you. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Gave his life for the church. He loved the church unconditionally. And God will bring that to mind. And I'll remember, this is how I'm supposed to treat my wife. Over and over again, there are truths in this book that I have read that have changed my life. Every slice of my life, every part of my life, the Word of God has infiltrated and changed me, taught me how to think about others, about myself, about the world around me. So here's my encouragement to you. Do not let this become like your wedding, China. Do not put it on your shelf and just get it out. When your grandparents come over, do not put it on your shelf and just pull it off when you happen to go to church. But take every day, take some part of every day and engage with the Word of God. We live in such an incredible time. Years ago, people had to go to church, to the one church in town perhaps, and listen to someone read the Word of God. There were times they went and they listened and it was in another language and they did not understand the Word of God. They could not hear it in a language that they were familiar with. We live in the most amazing time. We all have access to the Word of God. If you don't own a Bible, just go stay in a hotel somewhere. They give them away free there. They're in the drawer right next to the bed. And if you don't want to do that, just get on your smartphone, get on your tablet, get on your computer. There are translations that you can go to online and you can access any translation that you want. Or go old school, go buy a Bible and read a paper version and start with the book of Matthew and just read a chapter a day. Every morning, get up, starting in Matthew 1 and read a chapter. Next morning, read another chapter. Read another. Go all the way through to the book of Revelation. And as you read and engage with the Word of God, it will change your life. And it will change your eternal life. It will change who you are. It will change how you view yourself. It will change how you view others. It will change how you view the world. It will change you so much that you will never, ever be able to sit and eat a big, luxurious meal in full view of a man who is starving.